Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. This week's show, I am joined by Eric Foss at GatorCountry.com. We're also joined by Graham Hall from the Gainesville Sun, GatorSports.com uh, to talk about a, a brutal home loss to South Carolina, a very tough loss. Uh, we will dive into a number of topics related to that game, related to the team's culture, related to uh, Florida's issues defensively, uh, coach's corner on pick and roll defense, and we'll uh, get into the South Carolina or get into the LSU game coming up too. So um, sit back and, and we hope you enjoy the show uh, at least more than you uh, enjoyed a really tough game. All right, everybody. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Black in Saturday Down South with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Needed 24 hours to kind of recover from, I don't know how I put it to you in a text message last night, but let me try to reiterate it for our listeners. Uh, Florida lost 72-66 to South Carolina at home. Florida's second home loss, both home losses this season, kind of mystifying, Eric. Um, and yet this one almost didn't feel that surprising. Well, I don't think you you were you know you weren't surprised. You didn't feel the way uh, the way you were writing about it before and, and talking about it. Um, I've got to say, I was a little surprised. And I mean, I'm someone who loves Frank Martin. I think Frank Martin is is awesome. I, I think honestly, Frank Martin might have been one of could could have been the difference in this one. I'm not sure exactly how I would chalk it up. I thought he just did some fantastic fantastic late game stuff that that was the edge and. Uh, uh, as much as I as as much as I love their players, as much as I love uh, Frank Martin, as much as I, I thought they were better than their record indicated, um, I I did think this was going to be one that, that Florida was going to handle, and and even throughout the game, as much as Florida was never able to like pull away, it, it was kind of crazy. Like if you're a believer in something like like Ken Palm has the uh, the win probabilities throughout the game, and at like seven minutes to go in the in the second half, Florida had a 96 percent win probability. Um, so even even up until that point, it wasn't like they had put the game out of reach or anything but it just it just always kind of felt like the Gators were ahead and I, and I kind of thought that they were going to pull it out and, and obviously they didn't yeah I mean even up six uh, I think they scored one point from there on uh, but up six 65 59 I felt like a lot of people probably felt that Florida had the game in hand at that point and then the Gators end up uh, in this situation where you know, Tyree Appleby missed kind of a, a good look at the rim that would have made it an eight-point lead, and Carolina comes down and gets a dunk. And it's suddenly it's 65-61, and you're kind of like, oh, no. And then uh, it got away from him. But, I mean, if you look at things, and we're going to bring in Graham Hall from the Gainesville Sun in a second um, to, to talk about how this felt inside the program because it just – you're right, Eric. I thought it was a game Florida would win – I also thought it was going to be a very difficult game because Carolina's talented because both of us have a lot of respect for Frank Martin as a coach. And, uh, you know, then there's that, the elephant in the room, which we'll talk about with Graham, right? Like the handling success factor. Yeah. And it's, it's, it was one of those games too, where, you know, the two things that have made Florida successful this year when they've been successful, uh, at least on the offensive end, which has been, you know, I guess their, their only side of the ball, they've really had a lot of success. Um, it's been because their pick and roll has been awesome. Uh, and it's because they've hit their threes. 
And I thought that South Carolina's pick and roll defense was incredible. Um, they dropped pick and roll coverage, which is uh, something that, you know, you, me and Neil have been talking about for a while. We, we wish the Gators would do that. And man, if you, if there was any question as to why me and Neil want Florida to drop pick and roll coverage, uh, go see what South Carolina did to the Gators. And, and I tweeted out some clips because I was pretty blown away. Florida was like at just over 0.7 points per possession on pick and rolls, uh, which is very poor, especially for a team like the Gators who are one of the best pick and roll teams in the country. South Carolina just, uh, uh, just dominated them in that area. But anyway, so that's, that's one thing that Florida has had success this year with their pick and roll offense. Well, their pick and roll offense was not there, got completely neutralized by South Carolina. Uh, the other thing was that Florida has been a team that's a, a hit a ton of their threes. And uh, it's actually been crazy that, that Florida has had such su- sustained success so far this season shooting threes. Like they've had some really hot games, but I mean, really they've, it's not like they've been flashes in the pan. They've been a good consistent shooting team. And this is kind of the first, the first game where they're, uh, where they go a little bit cold and it ended up catching them. So what we have now is Graham Hall uh, from Gator Sports, Gainesville Sun. Graham, we were just talking about um, how kind of a, a number of things, it was almost the perfect storm of, of things that lead to an upset defeat. Uh, obviously the fan base, it feels like any time Florida loses now, it becomes a referendum on the whole program, uh, fair or unfair. But let's try to focus on this game, and and like you know, from your seat, uh, more just Florida went three of twenty from the field down the stretch, and and South Carolina, you know, really played inspired offense in the second half, or some sort of combination of bad defense and bad offense. Uh, and welcome, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been. I know we tried to link up in recent weeks, it seems like. I think we were actually – was it going to be the FSU game? I, I don't Yeah, know. <laughs> it's going to be after Florida beat FSU. We were going to have you on in all their glory. Yeah, and, and then obviously <laughs> things happen with that game. And, you know, this is not how I thought it would be when we talked again. When, when that kind of got scratched, I'm thinking, all right, well – the season's kind of down the tubes. And as you're seeing, even this week, Mike White and, and the coaching staff has been open that they thought that that was a possibility that this team would want to throw in the towel in 2021 and, and not be able to return due to the shock and the trauma, which I think would have been understanding for everybody on the outside, especially, and people who knew them, how close that team is. The fact that they're playing at this level that they are, I didn't think that we would be here talking about it. Uh, I guess it's fitting to be talking about this team's difficulties after a loss, because I think you really saw before this in the four game stretch leading up to this loss, how good this team can be when everything, just about everything goes right. Yeah. Colin Castleton was missing. Scotty Lewis was out. You really didn't get, I I thought amazing play from, from two guards at one point, uh, Noah Locke, I thought, I thought played really well in his return to the starting lineup, but really, I don't think that you could say that that four game winning streak, Florida played amazing basketball. I, I don't think it would be the most impressive stretch that I've seen. So I wasn't that shocked by the loss to South Carolina because I wasn't that floored by what we'd seen before, I guess is the long answer here. Neil, you're muted right now. <laughs> Hey, show it. Yeah, it's all right. I do. I would say we, 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 special, we specialize. Point to us and I'm like, oh, I'm, I start a good question. Then I have a chance to go again. And then I totally 
don't say it as well the second time. And I'm like, I wish you had heard uh, started that question. I know. All I, all I was going to say before kicking it to Eric was that we specialize in long answers at Florida Basketball Hour, so you're good. <laughs> Perfect. But, right well, what, what, one of us does. That's uh, that's me, who's definitely known for the rant. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would totally have to agree with you, Graham. I mean, I, I didn't think the team looked good against Georgia. I didn't think they looked good against Vanderbilt. Luckily, when you play teams like Georgia and Vanderbilt, uh, you maybe have a little bit more rope. And, and the other things that it did show me was uh, man, I, I just do think this team is just so talented, even without Keontae Johnson. It's it's the fact that they were able to play poorly and just out-athlete, out-length, out-skill Georgia and Vanderbilt. And as much as that's, you know, still we're talking about Georgia and Vanderbilt, I mean, you look as as recent as last season, it just seemed like Florida's margin for error was was so small that if they didn't play particularly well, they, they didn't have the, like, raw talent to take them over the top. And uh, then again, you look at a game like this uh, against South Carolina where uh, – uh, I, they they didn't shoot well from the three point line, and I just don't think they did anything else well enough to uh, well enough to win. Uh, I mean, you could look at the fact that they uh, they got out out rebounded a little bit. Didn't really bother me a ton. I mean, I know the lazy takes were out in, in full effect. You know, like was is this team soft because they got out rebounded? I, I think that's that's nonsense. Um, but uh, but again, it just it seems like oh, I thought that the margin. Uh, the margin of error for this team was maybe a little bit bigger than it has been these past couple of, of seasons just because uh, of the way they were able to out-talent at Georgia, out-talent to Vanderbilt. But, uh, but yeah, this one showed me that, uh, yeah, maybe maybe uh, maybe the margin for error is, is a little bit uh, a little bit smaller than, than I would have thought. I, I think that's absolutely fair. I think that because of how well Florida shot the basketball in that four-game winning streak that we maybe got a little bit ahead of ourselves and thought, oh, look at the outcomes of these games. Look how offensively talented this team is. And then we saw the comments from Mike White about what they were trying to change offensively in the middle of the SEC slate. You add those two together, and then you combine the fact that in the last, I want to say the last two years, if not longer, this has been a team that has been in a consistent defensive decline. And one of their few saving graces was guys like Scotty Lewis, Keontae Johnson, and Omar Payne when he's blocking shots, Colin Castleton when he's blocking shots. But otherwise, this is not a team that really for the last two years has made their money on the defensive end. They don't get out and transition overly well, at least not until this year. They've had a little more success at that, but they couldn't rely on sound defensive play to beat teams. And so we knew that offensively, if anything went awry, if they missed shots, if they didn't get back in transition, if, if they got beat, uh, if they got beat in the low post consistently where they couldn't get out there and run uh, in transition offense that they would have a lot of difficulties. And we really saw that against South Carolina. I wouldn't be surprised if moving forward, if I'm, if I'm Mike white, that I, I try and make some changes defensively. I would, I would say though, that having Scotty Lewis and Osai Osifo, that combination of those guys not being available for that stretch from the 13 minutes to the end of the first half. And then Scotty never really has a chance to get in a groove offensively, misses his four shot attempts, plays 12 minutes there in the second half, but never has a chance to get in the groove offensively. And, and I know that this is a guy that we could label fairly offensively limited, but before SEC play was averaging what close to 14 points a game here. I think he had four straight games where he, he scored more than 10 points a game and, and really was looking like a viable option because he was fitting into what Florida was trying to do offensively. Now he doesn't really have a role. And without him, 
I think that Florida, their ceiling is a little bit lower when things go awry, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I think you might have alluded to the answer uh, you have upcoming for this question I'm going to ask. But uh, but Graham, one of my uh, one of my takes on the podcast uh, that has come out a few times, and and Neil shares the opinion is that uh, is that I do think that Scotty Lewis is is very overrated as a defender. I think he is uh, obviously a very willing defender. Um, I just don't think he's a super high quality one. And it's, it's one of the podcasts I've defended with some numbers um, and as well as, you know, the, the eye test, which is pretty big for defense. But um, again, I see Florida's problem or one of their problems defensively this year has been like, man, they, they have not been able to get stops against, um, uh, against the opposing team's best perimeter perimeter option. Like Scotty Pippen just goes off against the Gators. Cam Thomas goes off against the Gators. And then uh, last night, uh, AJ Lawson goes off against the Gators and uh, it just seems like they don't have that one guy who can kind of hang with them. And, and often that was Scotty Lewis, who was taking those one-on-one assignments. Uh, and then last night uh, he got a quick chance, didn't go particularly well. And then uh, that, that was one of the reasons he didn't play many minutes, but I, I'm curious what, what I'm getting at Graham. My question is for you um, hearing my bias, hearing Neil's bias. Uh, what do you think about Scotty Lewis as a defender? As a defender, let me take it back to where I think the reputation that he was an elite defender came from. Obviously, on the recruiting trail, when often how they're going to predict that, assess that, gauge that is your athletic ability. And there is no doubt in anyone's minds, all three of us here, that that is a world-class athlete, Scotty Lewis. But I always thought it was interesting that at a sport – at an age where you're not really playing a whole lot of team defense, how could you really determine whether someone was an elite defender at the age of 16, 17 years old without seeing how they really the, mentally approached their defensive preparation and how they understood how they would fit in schematically to a team's defense? Does that make sense? And so I always kind of just toss it out the window anytime I hear, hey, this guy's an elite defender. Well, you know, let's see what he's like once he gets in. And, and maybe that's kind of an old school mentality in a sense here in this analytics driven approach people out there i'm sure can say well you you know that this 15 year old is a good defender we can quantify it now but that really i don't think is something that you can fully gauge until someone gets into a program learns the ins and outs of team defense and then applies their one-on-one defense in a role because you can be the best one-on-one defender in the world but if you're slow to rotate give up consistently aren't aggressive at the rim don't go straight up don't play on two feet you know all the stereotypes, cliches I could throw out there, if you don't do such and such and such well, it's not going to really matter. And I think that's where we're at right now with Scotty Lewis, that everything that he does well is kind of getting overshadowed by the things that he's just still kind of missing. And let me say this, it's a strange year. This is a guy who was expected to take a huge leap in, in his sophomore year and has taken one. Let's Let's say that with all the ins and outs of of COVID and he has stayed involved in the community with social justice and continue to do a lot of great things and show a lot of maturity for, for a sophomore. You know, I, I got to say that. So it feels kind of wrong in a sense to chastise his defense, but that mentality was that he was going to be a five-star elite defender when he got to this program. And so you have the reality of the situation flying in the face of, I think the, preconception that everyone thought and we're just finding out right now that this is someone who could be an elite defender but they have a long way to go when it turn when it comes to 
learning the ins and outs of how to play team defense. Yeah, it's interesting that I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Graham, because I think, you know, well, let's back up to the beginning of the recruiting process. The other thing is that he went to a school where he wasn't facing really good competition uh, consistently. Uh, it's not like Niles Lane, who was at Roselle Catholic, playing every big boy that there is to play. Um, Rainey just, they weren't in that category. Uh, so that's part A of it. It's not like, you know, like Trey Mann's senior year at the Villages, suddenly they started playing everybody. So you got a little bit of an idea that Trey could score in high school games. And then I think the willing defender point that, that Eric and you make at a camp as coaches, we go to those things and we see, uh, you know, like Eric and I'll see a kid at a camp and if they're real high energy and, you know, that's that small sample size, you could you could fall in love with that real easily, especially when they're as athletic and lanky and bouncy as Scotty Lewis is. So I think he had some of that going on. And like you said, you got to get into a scheme and now he's playing the best players he's played. So that's part A of it. And then to me, part B of it is, something that the coaches referenced in the press conference uh, today, I guess, which was, um, you know, uh, or after the game, whatever I watched on, on Gator zone, uh, just, he was coming off probably his best game defensively in college where he really locked down miles McBride. Yeah. He stopped doing what he had. You know, one of his big problems has been defending and how he can be a little spazzy in closeouts, right? Like, over aggressive and gets blown by better at defending on two feet. Cause he is really quick laterally. Uh, and it's so frustrating that he couldn't get involved in the game early. Cause he's a guy that look, Florida needs Scotty Lewis involved on both ends to win. And when he goes over four from the field, has three fouls and plays only 14 minutes, that's going to be tough sledding for the Gators. I think. No, um, I, I, <laughs> oh, sorry, Graham. I just need to point out Neil Neil's subtle, subtle, uh, subtle insertion that uh, that Niles Lane played against uh, some better, <laughs> some better competition. Uh, I I know that uh, I know that Neil's clamoring for some more Niles Lane minutes. So uh, I just just wanted to make sure that you <laughs> that little note there was noticed, Neil. You know, I'm I'm with you. You know, I I think that Niles Lane has a higher offensive ceiling, and. That right now, just based on what I've seen, now I haven't seen much of him in terms of a defensive capacity, but I, I would say that his offensive ceiling right now is higher. I, I think that his his three-point shooting form is better. He gets into his form. You know, I, I think he needs to be more aggressive, but in terms of also being a one-on-one -on -one defender, I, I think that he understands team defense right now maybe as much as Scotty Lewis does, and, and that's why you're seeing him earn some minutes even in a year – where he didn't get much development or any really a chance to learn a bunch of Florida system, which they've kind of now thrown out the book here in, in the past, what, three weeks. And, you know, this is a, a situation with, with Scotty Lewis, where I think that you often have a lot of people coming over who follow football as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I got to be careful what I say and, and not criticize anyone, but I think you have a situation where everyone just assumes five-star going to be this talented and, too often that's not necessarily the case. There's so there's so much that goes into it. And Eric, I, I think I'm going to kind of open this up to you here because you can touch on this more than me here, but player development is not what it was 
10 years ago. I mean, if Scotty Lewis gets to Gainesville in 2010, he has a much better chance, I think, of Florida's assistant coaches locking him in a room and saying, you're going to become this, 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 and it actually happening. Whereas in right now, due to a lot of NCAA regulations and you add in the COVID environment on top of that, it's really hard for someone not named Scotty Lewis to be in control of Scotty Lewis's offensive development right now and his defensive development. Yeah, this was a, this was a good conversation me and Graham had over DM a, a little while ago. And, and again, it's it it's kind of circles to to my take that I've delivered in the past that I, I think the role of coaches when it comes to player development is is very overrated, which is going to sound weird to a couple of uh, to, to some people. But uh, but again, like that is something that like I think when some people think coaching and player development, they think that they, like they're imagining like the practice gym and it's empty and Mike White is there with a couple pylons and a rack of balls and and a player and he's he's running them through drills and and yes because there's only a certain amount of hours that um, the players can be on the court in a week um, the same thing in the offseason it's just those days just just don't happen Um, there's just like it's not like these coaches are able to go put in a bunch of one-on-one time with these players or or uh, even not even one-on-one time there's not even much of an opportunity to go out on the court and say, Hey, we're going to spend an hour and a half on, on skill development. It's like, man, they've got it. You know, they've got it. They're coming off a game Wednesday night and they've got it's to play Saturday. The next, the next opponent. <laughs> yeah. So they really can't correct to what they want to. Even. So I, I, I thought this was crazy. I've got a, I've got a friend who plays at a non-Florida school. Um, I went to go see them play uh, last year around this time. So it's February. And he's like, man, we, ha- we haven't practiced since the first week of December. And I was blown away by that. But then I thought about it, and that's kind of what it is when you see the schedule, when you see travel. Um, he's like, "Yeah, we do we do walkthroughs and we do we do game prep." But he's like, "We haven't we haven't you know practiced since the first week of December." And I don't know exactly if that's every program. I don't know if that's what Florida's like, but I'd have to imagine when so much of the college basketball season it is um, it is game prep, it is it is team stuff. It's just it's just not as much the individual player development that I think that some people picture. So again, like. I, I'm not going to so so for that being said, like for players that didn't develop, I'm not like, wow, that's such a that's what Mike White really failed him. And then I'm also not looking at, you know, Chris Chosen being like, wow, that's like Mike White molded this guy out of clay. Like it's just I, I don't really view things that way. I think that people overrate the role of, of coaches and player development. And, and and yeah, I see something with with Scotty Lewis, and it's like, man, I I do think he just he just lacks offensive instincts right now, just like when to drive when to make the extra pass, um, just seeing the floor, seeing a defense. Um, as much as people give him the reputation as someone who is so good in the open court, I don't think he plays that well in transition, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I think that there's a you know, there's, there's a reason that Florida wasn't able to play fast last year, and I don't believe it was Andrew Nemhart. And maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll leave it at that. What a hot take. What a mic drop right there. Now, I, <laughs> I do think that when it comes to Scotty finding his role on offense, we've seen it in spurts. What was it two weeks? It wasn't even two weeks ago when he returned, he looked really good in those first few minutes of the game where he come out, came out. And I think he had eight points right away in, in the game. Who, who do they play? I'm, it's escaping me right now. Vanderbilt. It may be Visualize the, the jump shots off the dribble, but I, I'm blanking too. <laughs> oh, that's good. Man, you, you brought Great podcasting. Up. You're it, it was Vanderbilt, right? Because he was, missed. I want to say it's Vanderbilt. He returned. Did he miss? Did he miss? Did he miss the Georgia game? No, he played. He played against Georgia. Then um, it was Georgia. 
Okay. See, this SEC schedule, I'm, I'm going to have to go back. And once I <laughs> well, read, sorry. Oh, no, so, so he he did not play against Mississippi, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Georgia. He came back with 10 points um, against Vanderbilt. So, so then so it was Vanderbilt. I'm, I'm thinking it was Vanderbilt. So, so yeah. Vanderbilt in the first – it was the first four minutes, and he looked really good. And I'm thinking this is a guy who realizes that the offense is no longer suited necessarily towards his skill set. So he's going to have to work a little bit harder, create his own shot, and I was really impressed that he showed the ability to do that, but then it really disappeared and the offense wasn't really running through him and he really didn't have a chance to, you know, isolate his man one-on-one and, and beat his man off the dribble, do anything that showed that this is a guy who, but then at the same time, there's, there's still the other issues that, that we see where I could understand why they're not, you know, running the offense through him at, at, at all and, and why it slows down in a sense when he is out there. I, I was not surprised that he didn't return in the second half the other night against South Carolina. I, I, if it's a Keontae Johnson situation in the past or, or Trey Mann, it, you know, I, I think that Mike White would break away from the, the two fouls and you're done in the first half rule. But with Scotty Lewis, he's just not really commanding the attention on the offensive end to, to warrant that risk right now. Well, and the other thing that I don't think did Scotty Lewis any favors was some of the lineup he was he was playing in was with him at the four. It was that Tyree Appleby, Trey Mann, Noah Locke, then Scotty Lewis at the four next to Colin Castleton. Um, of course, I tweeted out that uh, how that lineup has been quite poor this season. Um, there were stretches last year where Scotty Lewis played the four. It, it never went well. So uh, that was a lineup that obviously gave up some key buckets there late and, and ultimately was, uh, was the lead that the Gators weren't, weren't able to claw out of. So, uh, which again, that was, uh, yeah, again, that was, that was one of the things that was maybe a little bit, a little bit frustrating um, was to see a lineup that has played so poorly this year, um, go in in a clutch moment and play poorly. Um, that always stings, stings a little bit, but again, I, I don't think that did that maybe did Lewis any favors playing in, playing in a lineup that uh, yeah, has not done well historically. Yeah, I was going to say, I think when I look at this game, you know, they're kind of, there's a couple different ways to view it uh, aside from the Frank Martin stuff that, that we can get into. But I thought, you know, one of the things um, that was that was detrimental to Florida was rotations. Like if you have a coaching criticism, it was that the, the offense, Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, so we have a uh, we have an awake child. No, um, so uh, you know, I thought this was a game where Florida sometimes has had puzzling rotations this year, and I think part of that is searching for identities and combinations in a world where the SEC preseason Player of the Year is not available. So you have to you had to expect some probing and searching on that front. Uh, not many on on the the louder part of the fan base are going to be too accepting of that, but it is kind of a fact. They didn't work that well last night. Uh, I also think that Florida's best rotation, I, I texted Eric for this earlier, uh, the best possible lineup I can think of for this team and its skill set is Mann, Appleby, Castleton, Payne, and Lewis. They've played, uh, what was it, Eric? Nine possessions. Nine possessions, five minutes total. Yeah, that's not very good. That's not, uh, Florida, that group should play more together. Um, so that, that, that puzzles me, but that's part two of it. And then um, I'm going on like a faucet rant here and I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> pleased about it. But I think, you know, the third piece of it for me was also a little bit of luck. And, and this part is what's going to get my mentions hopping again. 
Um, so Eric often shouts out people that he follows. Pivot analysis gets a lot of love on Florida Basketball Hour. I want to go to my guys at Shot Quality. Uh, and my guys at Shot Quality pointed out something that I had kind of tweeted and, and then almost wanted to delete the tweet because of my mentions, uh, that Florida got a lot of really good looks anyway in their offense and, and missed shots. And according to uh, Shot Quality, based on shot selection alone um, and the shots actually attempted by both teams, Florida lost by six, but they were expected based on those shots to win by eight, and they had a 70 four percent chance of winning the game based on shot selection uh you know and it ended up on the other 26 percent side a guy like seventh woods made three floaters you know so there's your six point defeat yeah look <laughs> looking at the shot quality profile um it, it definitely was a lot of the fact that florida got a lot of open threes that that didn't fall tyree appleby had some uh samson recensive had a good look at one uh that's just uh, that is going to happen sometimes in basketball. So uh, there's definitely you know when you're shooting a lot of open threes, that's the best uh, best expected shot value you're you're going to get. So there definitely was was a luck element. Um, there's there's no question. Um, but uh, just going back again to what you were mentioning regarding the the rotations, uh, one thing that I find pretty interesting, and and again, people who read my stuff or listen to the podcast will know that last year, you know, I spent a lot of time. Once Florida played the the Omar Payne, Kerry Blackshear lineup and it went really, really good and they crushed Auburn in their best performance of the season and it went really well. And then they went away from that lineup and never played it again. And I, of course, said that's very odd that they're not playing this lineup. And uh, Graham, I believe you were the one who actually asked Mike White about it in a press conference, thought you were a hero for that. Um, but uh, again, so you're seeing Florida that will start with the two bigs this season or the, sorry, this, these last couple of games. But uh, White seems very hesitant to put them in in the second half. And between not wanting to play two bigs last year, even though it ha- even though it has success, and then being reluctant to go to the two bigs uh, this season, though he did right at the end of the game go back to them for a couple of possessions, uh, it just tells me that he does not trust those lineups, which I think is 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 interesting. I think that you can certainly have reasoning for it. But wh- whenever whenever a team starts a certain way but closes an entirely different way, uh, it just it tells it tells you who you trust. Um, and, and right now it's, it's just interesting that despite the fact that the two big lineup seems to be playing very well, uh, it, it just, yeah, just doesn't seem like white wants to play them in, in the final minutes. Yeah. You, it's a, it's a really good point. And how do I start this one? Thanks for saying that about the rotations, because you know, I know that I'm not the smartest guy in the room when it comes to basketball. And so I try not to ask head coaches about rotations because that is a quick way to put your foot in your mouth and admit that you're missing something or you're, you're going to get a coach to say, well, you're not seeing what I'm seeing in practice and you're not, you, you're not gauging it the way I'm gauging it because often they're not looking at it through the analytic lens and the net rating lens that we're looking at it. They're looking at it as who's going to make other guys better and who's reacts better, who communicates the best when they have their teammates out there and little things like that, that, that I probably am not even thinking of like, like right now. I, I mean, it's a very nuanced thing. And when it comes to Mike White's rotations, you know, there's probably some, some prejudice there on his end as well. He has liked to run small ball lineups in years past and going away from that maybe is at a detriment to several other positions. And it's also taking shooters off the floor until Omar Payne and Colin Castleton can, can space the floor you're you're taking away your your offensive 
shooters and, and the game has moved in that direction for the last five years. So I think about that all the time. But with all that said, that's kind of all excuses. With all that said, since the beginning of the season, I have been wondering since preseason camp if Omar Payne and Colin Castleton could theoretically exist on the floor together. I asked it from the first week if, if Keontae had a chance to slide back to that three position, gear him up potentially for his more natural position at the next level at six foot five. And if they could really run some big lineups there, because considering that he already was a mismatch for his guy um, in the low post, and that kind of was pushed aside and they focused on the competition between Omar Payne and Colin Castleton. And, and then when it became clear that Castleton had the edge, even if it was at the detriment of Omar Payne's confidence, I wondered if they would even experiment because that's what we were just talking about, experimenting with rotations. I thought if they would earlier experiment with a rotation of Omar Payne and Colin Castleton, and I got to admit that I was a little surprised that they didn't. Again, much of that was probably to do with Keontae Johnson and where other guys fit in where you run that lineup, and they probably weighed those two things. Now, with no Keontae Johnson, I understand why that hesitance is gone, and maybe Mike White is, is probably thinking, hey, you know, I'm surprised at how well this unit is working. Or maybe he's thinking, hey, I thought it would be just about this good and we'll take the the lack of three-point shooting and and the few other offen- offensive uh, deficiencies that come with running those two guys out there and we'll take that. But it was a slow process and it was a risky one necessarily. And, you know, Eric, don't take this the wrong way. A, a few weeks ago, when Mike White came out there and said, we're abandoning the dribble drive once again, we're what we spent five, six months installing, and we're going towards our, our personnel, that was kind of a no-win comment because so many people are going to say, well, you're throwing away what you just spent months working on. How well could this actually be? How well could this actually work what you're going to install? But if you try nothing with Lewis out, with Johnson out, then everyone says the opposite. Well, you didn't even try. You didn't even try to change. You, you know, you didn't even try and adapt. You just let it fail. So it really was kind of a no-win admission. And this is a coach who has kind of made a reputation for being honest. And he was very honest for the past few months that Omar Payne, he didn't think that he would work defending the baseline. And for the last three weeks, he's been much better at his baseline defense than they thought he'd be prior to this three-week stretch. Yeah, it definitely was a no-win situation. Um, but man, I, I love how candid Mike White is. I just, uh, it's got they're one of the best traits for sure. Uh, I, I mean, of course, the, what made it also a no-win was it'd be one thing if it was the first time that he's tried the dribble drive to start the season and went away from it. Yep. So the fact that it's that it's not contributed to the fact that it was it was a no-win. But um, hey, better better late than never. I, I'm glad he didn't beat it to death. Uh, beat it to death trying to uh, trying to keep it up, uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I I do think like you know I went into the opening games of last season saying like man I don't think the dribble drive is going to work for this team for this reason this reason this reason and then it's just like oh, I just kind of wish that uh, the staff saw it this, the same way and and again I just think that it's a, the dribble drive is just a style of play that not many teams have been able to have success with at the high major level so for for Florida to think that they're essentially going, going to go in the, the opposite direction of recent college basketball history and have success with the dribble drive that's just like a little bit of a little bit of a tough pill for me to swallow but uh, and and again the going back to the lineup data it is interesting to me with the whole 
like, like, obviously, I mean, like, yeah, how many practices have I been at this season? Uh, zero. Um, so do I know these players anywhere near as much as, as the coaching staff? It's like, well, no, I, I, I don't. But at the same time, it's like, results are results and we're, we're getting to the point where, where sample is, is piling up. And again, I, I do know the game is not played on a spreadsheet. So uh, it's not like, Oh, this, this lineup should never be played again because it's got a minus seven net rating. Uh, that's obviously not that, not the case, but man, it certainly makes it look worse when it, when it doesn't work. Like, you know, if, if Florida went out there with statistically their best lineup and it gets outplayed, um, then it can be like, well, you know, like we, they played their best and and they, they got beat. It happens, but it just, it just makes it, it makes it a little bit, uh, a little bit worse, but uh, man, I've got to say one thing that I find, I find just hilarious and like, like truly the, the greatest compliment that someone could give me is like when someone says like, Hey, like you've helped me learn something about basketball. Like that, that truly is like the best compliment I could receive. Uh, and there's like podcast listeners that like, or people that read my writing that like a year ago were like, Hey, like I'm a casual basketball fan. Um, just kind of tune in when football's done, but, uh, Hey, you've really helped me uh, learn something about the game. Like I didn't know much. Now I know a little bit more and I'm like, Oh man, like that's so great. And now like fast forward a year later, they're like tweeting at me. They're like, what's the net rating of this lineup? It's like, does he know that that floater is a 0.6 points per possession shot? And that just is like the funniest thing to me. So that's just a shout out to some, to some people who uh, have went from like, Hey, I'm learning a little bit more about basketball to being like, what this lineup has a minus seven net rating. Like what's going on here? Where does Ken Palm live? I, you know, <laughs> I think that, I think that it's hilarious to me when you get the avid football fan who gets so hot over a basketball game. Because there's 27 of them this year. You can lose some. You can lose a three-point game to South Carolina, and it's not going to kill your season. It's not going to kill your recruiting. It's not going to get a coach fired. So when people get so worked up, I kind of just want to be like, why? I mean, you're going to get less than a week a chance to bounce back. When everyone thought the sky was falling prior to the Tennessee game, they didn't act like it was heaven on earth when Florida went out and, and beat Tennessee by 26. So I don't understand the adverse reaction in, in that sense um, whatsoever. But I, you know, Eric, I got to say, man, you have absolutely, I, I think one of the greatest compliments you can give any writer in my opinion is that it, your writing is easily relatable, easy to follow for people who don't have intense knowledge of the subject. And when you can open up your, and for people who have advanced knowledge of it, when you can open up your writing to a wide demographic and draw more people in, you are doing those people a service and, and making them fall in love possibly about a sport that they wouldn't have fallen in love with if they didn't have a chance to fully understand it. And you, you have a chance to give them that. And I hope you realize that you and, and Neil, what you guys are do for a lot of people, Florida fans especially, is help them better understand the sport that they care so much about but maybe want a better understanding of that so i hope you guys know that there's probably countless people out there who don't reach out to you who, who feel that way so um one more thing i gotta say eric for a, for you know a florida fan uh, you know like yourself I, i'm sure it's got to kill you who also has a great understanding of florida and basketball analytics that mike white and the gators are so I don't want to say in love with, but so keen on going back to each year, the dribble drive and the, the press. I, I mean, those two, if this was 2012 right now, I, I think that we would have no problems criticizing those two. But the fact that Florida is in NCAA tournament contention and still utilizes those as frequently as they do, I think is pretty, 
I guess, astounding, unlikely in a sense. And then you add in Keontae, Colin Castleton, the lack of a the lack of a senior. I, I don't think this team has a real senior on the on the roster. I, I mean, I didn't even realize that honestly until just now. But <laughs> there's so many unlikely aspects of it, and and the more you understand the game, you, you realize even more. Well, one thing that's pretty crazy is, so obviously Florida was very young last year. Um, we know that. Uh, so this year they obviously return a bunch of guys, uh, but uh, they're actually 252nd in the country in experience. So as much as, uh, you know, they return all these players, uh, but they're still young, like on the grand the grand scale, they definitely have some, uh, some players that played a lot as freshmen. So however you want to gauge the experience, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the dribble drive thing is again, yeah, they had some older freshmen. Scotty Lewis turned 20 in his freshman year. And, (laughs) you know, I think we were talking about this last year, the Shabazz Muhammad ordeal from what a decade ago when he lied about his age, when he was at UCLA and, and he was this great NBA draft prospect and people were saying, Oh, this is a guy possibly first round NBA pick. And then they find out before the draft, and he's actually 20 years old <clears throat> instead of 19. And then he falls down the charts. I think there was a point last year where I found out that Scotty Lewis was a 20-year-old freshman that kind of blew my mind a little bit, I, I got to say. Yeah, I mean, and then you've got Trey Mann who turned 20 last night. <laughs> Pretty uh, well into I mean, the I mean, I, I got to admit, I'm a Cleveland Cavaliers fan. And Colin Sexton right now, number seven in NBA All-Star fan voting at <laughs> what? 21 years old, just turned 21. I mean, so I hate to really pull the age card when it comes to guys, but the college game and the NBA game are always going to be linked as the development route to the big leagues. And so when you're already the same age as guys who were out there, you know, scoring 24 points a night, I, I do have a hard time not comparing them as unfair as that may be. Yeah, the, the the age thing is is definitely pretty interesting, and and again, when people are talking about Scotty Lewis's draft potential, uh, that age thing's going to kind of come up, and it came up last year when it was like, oh well, should he go as a one and done? Like uh, he's older than most freshmen, so like, is he your kind of regular one and done? Um, oh, do you expect him to be further along than he is? It's it's yeah, it's the the age is something that that those teams look at. I I, I can tell you that much, but. Uh, yeah, going back to the the dribble drive that they that they went in with. I mean, I, I, again, it's 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 not just just the dribble drive, but there's other there's other things about adjustments that uh, that have been a little bit of a of a problem. I w- I would say, and uh, whether it's in that's obviously kind of like season to season. Um, the fact that it took them a little while to realize that the style of offense that works for very few teams at the high major level uh, is not going to probably work with uh, with Florida's talent and with the the style of players they they put together, but. Uh, then you've seen there the, the fact that they have been um, slow to adjust defensively. I mean, Mike White has just been someone who really does not want to play zone. He's never been comfortable playing zone. And therefore, you you do limit yourself. I mean, earlier in the podcast, Graham, you're talking about how they probably need to change something defensively. It's like, well, uh, they don't want to play zone. We know that much. Uh, or what re- history would show us that much. And uh, they have been sitting in the gaps a little bit more. They had some success. It worked uh, worked pretty well against against uh, West Virginia, I thought. Um, but yeah, we, we didn't see those adjustments against South Carolina, where AJ Lawson's just getting straight line drive after straight line drive. And uh, the other thing too is is the fact that that South Carolina dropped pick and roll coverage, and I don't think the Gators had any answer how to how to attack it. Uh, the the thing with the drop pick and roll coverage is is you know Florida kept going to their 
their duck in ball screens with the second big ceiling help uh, while the high ball screen is being set. And the, the thing with that is the idea of sealing the help is that uh, the ball handlers might be able to get all the way to the rim. We've seen that a number of times. Omar Payne's just like sealing the help and Tyree Appleby goes and gets a, a warm up layup where he just strolls in and, and scores or, or they get, uh, they get the roll man because once again, the help isn't there. And it worked on the first play of the game that, uh, that alley-oop to Omar Payne, but uh, the rest of the game, it's like drop pick and roll coverage is going to take away that play every time that, that ball handler is not going to be able to get all the way to the hoop. Um, and then also Florida likes this side ball screen that they ran a ton, a ton last night. And it's a, uh, it's a, good set they set a screen for the screen setter who goes and sets a side ball screen they set a flare for Noah Locke and maybe he's there for the three-point shot but again with that drop pick and roll coverage they're they're going two for two they're not engaging a help side defender so that flare screen for Noah Locke is never going to be there uh the other thing too is if you drop screen and roll coverage uh you you love when teams run side ball screens it's just a lot easier to defend with your with your guard being at a much easier angle to get underneath the screen and and again Florida just uh went to it over and over and over again. And that's a big part about why they had one point over the last six minutes of the game or whatever it was. So, so there is still some, some of those moments that's like, you know, I, I look at the, the luck element that was certainly there of Florida going, you know, shooting 28% from three, despite a lot of open looks, that's definitely going to happen. But, but I also see it's like, man, they, uh, the, I, I don't think that the adjustments were there. And, and again, uh, an interesting stat was that uh, uh, Florida ran 43% of their possessions as screen and roll against uh, South Carolina, which is the uh, the highest in the Mike White era that I could find. I only went a couple of years back. I'm going to guess that uh, I'm going to guess that, you know, the elite eight team didn't do that as much, but uh, so that was as, as pick and roll reliant um, a team has been in, in the Mike White era and uh, it didn't yield much results. And they also didn't seem to make many changes. Um, South Carolina just kept dropping pick and roll coverage, dropping pick and roll coverage, coverage and dropping pick and roll coverage. And Florida kept running the same stuff and it just turned into, uh, you know, tough contested shots in the mid range. And, and uh, the, you know, those are the moments where I would just like to see in the scout, not even let's not even wait for five minutes in against South Carolina in the scout say, okay, South Carolina drops pick and roll coverage. Um, is our pick and roll offense going to work against this? I think they probably should have been able to tell, Oh no, this, uh, our, our, our duck and ball screens, uh, that doesn't really jive with, uh, that doesn't really jive playing against the drop pick and roll coverage, the side ball screen. Um, not, not the greatest either. I just, I, I just would have loved to have seen, uh, seen a different game plan. Yeah. Back-to-back weeks when, you know, they have an extra day in a sense to prepare for the, the opponent. You would think that it, it, one of the few critiques is to realize what the opposition does well, and then to not do that at, at a high frequency, I, I think. And really, you know, I, I kind of joked with you about simplifying it for football, you know, the football fans out there, but yeah, the first play of the game, you know, you know Florida's running the quote unquote scripted drive and then South Carolina adjusts and that's that's not really an option for Florida, and then they don't adjust offensively the rest of the game, and and they weren't good enough on the defensive end to, like I said, get points in transition. And when you take that element out of the game, this is a team that if they are not hitting three point shots, they are extremely limited offensively. It is, I mean, there was a quote not to pull Mike White's words against him, but two weeks ago, he said verbatim, "We're gonna." Yeah, I think it was against Vanderbilt. He said, we're going to screen and screen and screen and screen and screen. And, and they're, they're doing that and, and they're doing that consistently. And this is a team that they're not going to change a lot of what they're doing offensively because they already have thrown out so much that when you have so many young guys, you don't want to overcomplicate it. And something that, you know, you know, I, I knock their failure to get out 
in, in transition, but something that stood out to me after the game and kind of blows my mind, that was the most blocks against South Carolina that the, the Gators have had against an SEC team in program history. I mean, the last time they had 12-plus was in 2006 against FAMU. I mean, <laughs> to not get out in transition, to, to not – to allow to, your your opponent to get more offensive rebounds than you, just it, – it also came down to hunger. It was a failure to adjust, but I also think that there was a little bit of complacency aspect, and I, and I hate to say that because in basketball – on a game to game basis that matters way less than being complacent in football. It seems, but it seemed like the complacency shown through in how little Florida was able to adjust offensively to how the Gamecocks were defending them. Yeah. And there's a lot of directions I could go here, I guess, uh, you know, you guys have, have thrown around a lot of stuff, but I, I think you've, you've, you've teed me up for something that, that, is a good question to, to ask you since you're around the program. Uh, and obviously, um, you know, we won't, we won't dive into all the things that, that Eric and I should be around, but aren't, but um, let's just say that, uh, you know, what is, what, what was the sentiment? I mean, I know it's different than a normal year because you're limited to the zoom stuff uh, for, for the obvious reasons, but, you know, I thought, I thought Trey Mann's comments that were re- released showed a lot of maturity. Um, at the same time, I think what was so disappointing about last night for me was, and I told Eric this, so he, he already knows where this is coming from, uh, is I may have even actually tweeted it, is that this has been such a tough team. Like this is such a resilient group that you, I think we kind of thought that maybe the culture of this team might be a little different than the culture of the program the last couple of years where handling success has been a real problem, but then they do lead the sec and like road wins against quad one opponents in the last like three seasons. Like, and it's actually not that close. Like I saw that they had the ranked ones, So I went back and looked at quad ones and they have like three more than Kentucky in the last three years. So like they love to travel and win on the road and adversity, all that stuff is like, feast for for Mike White's program the famine has been these types of home losses have have been a thing in the program for a few years and I think we all kind of thought hey maybe this group is a little resilient and a little above that and you'd think watching South Carolina with with a you know I I got an argument on Twitter about whether they had any NBA players and I said well they might not have any NBA first round draft picks but they certainly have three pros that I can count uh, and at least one of them will play in the NBA, in my opinion, A.J. Lawson. So, like, if that didn't stand out on film, and if Frank Martin doesn't scare you, because that team is always in the top half of the SEC, uh, then then what's going to? And I think that's what was so disappointing for me. So I guess my question, Graham, is was there some of that sentiment in Mike White's comments? Like, what bothered him more? Was it like we just didn't defend anybody last night? Or was it, you know, I'm culturally disappointed? Sure. No, good question. I, I think that – how do I start this? I think defensively Mike White has been very open about how he's displeased with how 
their lack of defensive progression for lack of a better word in a sense, just how they keep making the same errors on, on defense and, and fail to adjust uh, often. He has been very open about that. So I think he's reached a level of where he can either keep getting he can get mad about it or he can just keep repeating it ad nauseum rather than getting blue in the face. And so he just keeps repeating it often after praising the offense. So maybe it gets minimized in a sense, because he doesn't want to go out there with everything that's happened this year, with the way that this team is playing with the context of the thing that they they've still have won more than 60% of their games and what 60% of their games, what, and and that's after losing the SC preseason player of the year, dealing with COVID, integrating a transfer. Players have had huge leaps. Trey Mann, obviously Colin Castleton. You know, I, I think that Noah Locke is, is looking good as of late. Tyree Appleby looks good. Anthony DeRuji, what he's done has been noble. So you look at all the positives if you're Mike White. And then you look at the comments that you also have heard. We thought that it was a possibility we wouldn't even be playing here. We thought that they wouldn't want to play. You have the possibility of gratefulness replacing where that competitive desire necessarily was, where you can maybe have a little bit of complacency with when things go wrong. When you say, well, you know, hey, yeah, we didn't do that well, but we didn't even think that two weeks ago we were going to be here. Maybe that's some of that Mm -hmm. as well. What you're saying, though, is totally true. I, I Factors aside, context aside, Mike White is in danger of there being a, the apathy growing, obviously, but there being a, um, a, a what is the a stereotype, whatever you want to call it, that he blows late games, that they don't have the edge to close out teams, and that's not even just this past night when they were up 22 the other night, when they were up 17 at Georgia a few weeks ago. Those were close games that got down to single digits. So this was a question that was already on the minds, I think, of people before the South Carolina game. And then you temporarily assuage those inquiries for, what, two weeks because of the four-game winning streak. And then they come back right to the surface. So I think that he wasn't really upset because he was aware of them ahead of time. They temporarily just weren't there. There are things that this team maybe can't correct Right now, like I said, missing Keontae Johnson, how much better defensively can they get? Scotty Lewis goes down. Who can expect this team missing guys who theoretically, Mike White said at the beginning of the season, these are two of our best four defenders. Missing those guys, what are the expectations? It does kind of shock me when people see this team that has all these things that could be listed as quote-unquote excuses go wrong for them and then see a South Carolina team that has played pretty well in the last week, despite what that outcome not going their favor against Vanderbilt, they had a very good game against Georgia. And as you guys know, Frank Martin defensively, you can never take him lightly for any of those 40 minutes. So the lack of preparation, I understand why many people are focusing on that and harping on that. And I guess the short answer is this team is aware of their faults, but they still, I think, are in this level of in-between where they are aware that they should be doing these things competitively, but they're still just kind of grateful to be playing basketball in a sense and and doing that competitively, even if it's not at that 100% level, if that makes sense. And that is a, a, a tough balance as a head coach to deal with. Do you push your guys who maybe 
carrying shock and trauma and and could at a moment's notice break down and 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 say like you know what do you, can you expect of me we're missing our best teammates blah blah you you don't know what what that situation is like as a head coach this is uncharted waters to use a 2020 cliche you don't know what that's like so i would not be shocked if, if that's what the coaching staff is doing right now and, and focusing less on fixing the deficiencies and focusing more on just pushing the, the ship forward which is Many people, like I said, didn't even think that it'd still be out there on the water a few weeks ago or a couple months ago now. Yeah, that's a point Eric made on a previous podcast is that I, you know, people have kind of, people recentered their expectations after Florida came out of the gates in SEC play and won a couple games. Because like before that, I don't know if you made it on a podcast or just to me, Eric, but I and like, you know, people... People were just like, oh, it doesn't matter what happens with basketball. We just want Keontae to be okay. And that's kind of shifted uh, to, to where we are now, where these types of losses are, are, you know, obviously the fan base is really upset. I get it. At the same time, teams that have had less COVID problems or, you know, obviously less, less traumatic ones uh, with tremendous basketball reputations have, have had – Bad seasons. I mean, you know, look at uh, Duke is outside of the bubble. Uh, Michigan State is last four out, um, you know, and, and I think they're only that because Tom Izzo's their coach because anybody that's watched that team, that's not last four out, man. They're not good. Um, you know, like uh, Indiana has had a COVID pause and one COVID pause has them you know, and I always like to bring them up because Archie Miller's the guy that's supposed to be here and not Mike White, right? Um, but, but like, you know, they're not in the tournament pitcher. So, I mean, I think you could point at South Carolina has had plenty of COVID issues. Frank Martin looked terrible. Like, I mean, let's be honest about it. Like, the guy looked like a shell of himself. Uh, and, you know, he was real sick with COVID like I was. So, um, that's you know, they're five and six and, you know, just now starting, like you mentioned, Graham, starting to play good basketball. And even in those spurts, they go to Memorial gym and, and basically no show. Um, so, you know, to be 10 and five, I think is one thing that, you know, you kind of have to evaluate them in that way. At the same time, obviously there's this, this big piece that where, you know, they take these mystifying losses and so often they're in Gainesville. And I think that's, that's very sobering and frustrating to people. Is there a sense that you got that, you know, they were really ready to move on to the next one right away? It seemed like from what man was saying they were, and of course it's LSU and we all, you know, anybody that's, that knows people or talks to people inside the program knows the disdain that our staff has for that program in particular. Yeah, you would you would hope that they kind of just moved past it and said, listen, let's just focus on regrouping against this LSU team and, and focus on beating them. And, you know, going back to the way that that game ended last year, narrowly, Florida rallied, you know, let's turn it around. Against LSU last year, I, I got up at 4 a.m. to drive to, to Baton Rouge and, and get there. And, and Florida's down 10 with, what, 10, with two minutes left? And hit some improbable threes. I think cut it to a one, two-point game. Either way, it was... It was a one possession game there and it was LSU fans that who were moments away from saying, we just blew a 10 point lead against this 
lowly team at home and that was dealing with Kerry Blackshear having stomach virus issues and was missing multiple other players. And we were up 10 points with less than two minutes to play. And this Gator team rallied on us. We can't defend our home court. That's just basketball to me. You're going to blow some games. You're going to blow some 10-point leads no matter who you are. It's going to happen at every single level. It's going to happen in the NBA. It's going to happen in the NCAA. I mean, look the other night. Russell Westbrook versus Kevin Durant. Wizards versus the Nets. I mean, the Wizards scored eight points in eight seconds to, when the Nets thought they had that in the bag. I mean, it's going to just get used to it. And too often to say, you don't see anyone saying, hey, fire Steve Nash. I'm getting off topic here. I, I think that too often people are going to focus on the times that, that you blow a lead at home and they're going to forget about the times where you rally late to defend your home court. That's just how it is because it feels worse when you lose at home and it doesn't feel that great when you win at home. It feels like an expectation for some reason to me when that's a different point aside. Let me leave you guys with this in a sense here. And yeah. maybe this is just revisionist theory. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But before Billy Donovan really reached, I think the Hall of Fame stature that he's reached in the last 10 years, which has required the retrospect to realize how great he really is, I think. There was a time where there were statistics used against him about how he was in five-point games. And it was not overly... Flattering. Flattering. <laughs> That's a great word to use. It wasn't like a, a, a stat to say, oh, this is a great coach. It was, if anything, it was an, one of those things that said, hey, maybe he just doesn't do well at closing big games. That was one of the few knocks outside about Billy Donovan prior to his ascension among the ranks was may, maybe he at the end of games, isn't a good enough coach to get them over the hump. And then obviously he rewrote that narrative, but until you reach the ranks and reach that championship, they're going to find something to criticize you for as a head coach. I'm sure you guys know that better than I do. And I know I said one more thing, one more thing ago, but I see Scott drew clamored for all the time by Florida fans, other pro, other programs, and deservedly so. I mean, top seven winningest coach over the last decade. But if you based him solely off his success in the NCAA tournament, he's a middle-of-the-pack coach because they have underperformed in the big dance by those expectations. And so I think that too often we, we lose sight of the big picture. And as outsiders, we don't know what the big picture is. We don't know what the development looks like. We don't really have an accurate gauge over what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, what they can improve upon, who had last night's scout, who made the mistake, who made little errors, who left Jason Jatobo's name off the roster sheet, <laughs> stuff like that. We're not necessarily YouTube, but we're going to speculate <laughs> on anyway as if we as if we know, but ultimately they're going to say whatever they want about you and the record will uh, be the only thing that stands with you in the end, unless the NCAA takes that away from you too. Graham, well, tell, tell them where to find you, man. Hey, this is great, guys. You know, I, I, I didn't think you'd give me this much time. We're going to have to do it again where we ramble a little bit less. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. No, it's great. Eric and I don't care. It as well, but this was fantastic. Like I said, you guys do a great job, and, and I'm, I'm serious. You, you guys really make the sport easier to understand the complexities of this very, very – you guys do a great job breaking it down, analyzing it, making it easier for the mass to understand while also 
giving great insight and information to people who really look for a statistic analytic quantifiable approach to this game and and i i'm i'm honored to be able to be on the pod with you guys and you can find my subpar tweets at graham hall underscore you can find my game previews advances sometimes videos on gatorsports.com and in the gainesville sun uh we'll have a preview tomorrow talking to mike white before they go to baton rouge to play that uh hated lsu team saturday 2 p.m so look for that on gatorsports.com and we'll have to do this much sooner than last time guys yeah thank you so much for being on that was great thank you for the kind words and uh yeah, I mean, you're, you know, Graham, your your coverage is like everything that mine is is not like good, good quotes, um, the the personal angle, uh, it's 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 definitely a deficiency of mine. So I think if you, if people read my stuff and they read your stuff, they've I think that they've got everything everything covered there. I like that tandem, teamwork, <laughs> teamwork. You can't just go to one place for all your information. That's how I feel. You have to be about <laughs> in life, and and so you know, I don't want to be bringing the same approach as everyone else. And Eric, you have such a unique and informational um, angle. And, and I got to say, I do not, you know, my level of knowledge when it comes to the game, if I haven't made that clear, pales in comparison to your guys. I'm, I'm still working on it. And so um, reading your guys' stuff, it reminds me of how much work I still need and, and knowledge I can still gain. And, and I hope everyone else out there realizes that when they're reading your guys and your stuff and listening to uh, your guys' podcasts. Thanks, I've got Graham. so much. To, I've got so much to learn too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Graham. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. So, Graham Hall, a uh, lot of good stuff there. You know, brought up an interesting point, Eric, about um, kind of balancing the line between this team being grateful to be on the floor, and then also like having to piece together a team with such limited practice time and the constant pressure of the next scout, the next scout, the next scout. And I thought about that when, when you two were talking about that, Eric, and I'm not, again, I'm not making it. I think Florida should have won that game. Uh, we both agree with that, but you know, that's probably a pretty demanding scout South Carolina because they do so much stuff. Oh man! Well, they they ran this play like three times right at the at the end of the game. Um, it were uh, they they missed one shot. It was a great look. They missed another one that was an offensive rebound for Seventh Woods. That was a big bucket. But um, so Florida's going to hedge ball screens with the the soft hedge. We we know that. So if you're Colin Castleton guarding that guarding that play, when your guy goes to set a screen, your job is to go and get out to the level of the ball handler. You've got to sp sprint out there, and you've got to yeah, you've got to get to the level of that ball handler to hedge. So South Carolina, what they were doing is they went to go, they, they had their screener go to set that ball screen. They'd, they'd slow down for just a split second as if they were going to set that screen. Uh, and then he would ghost it and he would run to the three-point line because as soon as he went to go set that screen for just that half second, uh, Colin Castleton needs to go over the top of his man, get to the level of the ball handler and, and show. Um, so, so the moment he did that, uh, they ghosted the screen he ran to and got, they got wide open threes over it. I thought it was a brilliant play. They ran it a bunch of times and it was just like the perfect counteraction to, uh, to what Tau Florida played pick and roll defense. And, and again, I, I see stuff like that and it's like, man, one Frank Martin really is just awesome. I think he's such a good coach. I, I, I honestly don't think he gets the credit he deserves. And the other thing again is like, I know some people are going to look like, Oh, was this, did, did Florida lose the game? Because, 
they're mentally deficient and they, in some ways when it comes to toughness or, uh, you know, d- handling success. And I mean, like, you, you know, may- maybe I, I guess, but I mean, I, I see a team who, played against a really good pick and roll defense and had no answers for it. I saw a team that couldn't guard a straight line drive because that's been the problem even going back to last season. So, so I don't know. I just, maybe it's like the left side of my brain speaking too much um, versus the, the side that just says like, Oh yeah, maybe there is something to um, yeah. Just something to where they're at mentally. I, I that, that could certainly play a, a role and maybe a huge role, but I, I, I do just think that there's, there was some, some X and O's kind of stuff where they just got out executed against the team. That's better that than, than probably a lot of people think. So, so I do not see this as a loss. That's like, Oh, this team is mentally soft or they don't handle success. Well, I just, I, I think they weren't ready uh, maybe from a tactical standpoint, but, but ultimately I thought that they, they played against a team that played really well, executed really well, and they got the win. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of – I thought Florida's – that South Carolina sh- certainly should have had Florida's attention, and I can't speak to whether or not they did um, based on their talent level and their coaching and the type of stuff they run. Um, and I – so, I, you know, I mostly agree with you. The, the only – I would say that, you know, again, going back to the shot quality guys, I mean, Colin Castleton leaves six points at the basket, um, and Scotty Lewis left four points at the basket. So, uh, you know, it's ten points. Um, you know, you, let's say you hit three of those. Well, it's a tie, you know, you don't, you don't, you say you just leave four at the basket and then it's a tie. And then obviously there's going seven for 25 or whatever they were, uh, from three point range. And again, I mean, as much as things went wrong, they defended the perimeter well against a team that can occasionally get hot out there. Uh, Carolina's only four and 19. It felt like most of those were early when they built that nice lead. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I thought for the most part, it's, it's, you know, they kind of got out schemed in terms of not having an answer for the way South Carolina was defending their bread and butter on the pick and roll. Heck, even when Florida got them in the pick and roll, you know, there was one where they inverted it and Colin Castleton passed over the top and that wasn't a great pass. And so, you know, should Trey man handle that pass and make a layup? Maybe. But, uh, you know, if the pass is on the money, it's an easy two. Instead, I think Florida settled for a contested three-pointer, um, which didn't go in. And, you know, that that's kind of stuff that happens. And uh, you're the one that, that I think correctly pointed out margin for error that, you know, maybe it's a little bigger this year because Florida's so talented. And if we learned anything in that Georgia-Vanderbilt stretch where they weren't playing great, we learned that they have a little bit of a bigger margin for error now because of their talent level. But it's cert- it wasn't big enough uh, Wednesday night. No, I mean, I yeah, yeah, you mentioned it. I mean, like I said, with those those plays that South Carolina ran in the clutch, they had an answer for Florida's pick and roll defense, whereas Florida did not have an answer for for South Carolina's defense. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of kind of ultimately what what did it when you look at those 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 final minutes where where Florida kept running pick and rolls and got nothing out of it for for six minutes, and uh, South Carolina got uh, got the ones they needed. So they will now head out into the road and play uh, LSU. Kim Palm has it as a one-point LSU win. Bartorvik has it as a one-point Florida win. I mean, <laughs> what can you do with that? Tigers have lost four or five. Um, I still think they're pretty good, and a lot of it is just schedule. Uh, they they hit the Dante Allen buzzsaw. Then they had the bizarre – lose the game at the end against Texas tech. 
Chris Beard fully loaded. Uh, and then they played Alabama twice, which is unfortunate. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden, that's your losses. So, like, this isn't an easy task for Florida. No, and I mean, they should have beat Texas Tech. They, of course, had the humongous disaster where they, they had a significant lead with, like, 90 seconds left. And, and yeah, they let it slide. I mean, that was uh, that was definitely rough. But I, I, I still think that um, – yeah, I still think that this team is, is very talented. I think that they are still awesome offensively. Of course, their defense is, is going to get them beat on some games, and it, it has gotten them beat. Um, again, I mean, they're a team that wants to win shootouts. Well, they went up against Alabama, who's, uh, who's ready for a shootout on any day, and uh, Alabama is obviously just better at that style. So uh, they get them twice. So uh, I think that was a good, good comment from you, the fact that they, uh, you know, yeah, they, they run into Alabama two times out of five games and, and also see Texas Tech. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's going to be rough. But um, uh, still a team that I think just just runs really good stuff offensively. Uh, they have one of my, you know, a player that I am growing to to love is one of my favorite offensive players in the, the country that averages like less than six or seven points a game. I don't know what he actually averages, but that's uh, Mwani Wilkinson. Neil, have you seen that he is currently shooting 83% um, from the field? Uh, because, man, I just I just love watching him play where it's he just like knows, like he just does nothing for, for 15 minutes. And then like the moment his defender falls asleep, he cuts back door for a layup. I just, I, I love it. I think it's so fun. I love Mwani Wilkinson. Um, I, I love those. He's like, just knows his role so well. He's super fun, but he's again, just like, uh, someone who, again, you just see like when he's just like hitting, getting, going two or two for two or three for three every game on on wide open backdoor cuts. It's like, yeah, they they just uh, they all know their roles on uh, in, in LSU's offense. Yeah, I like Moani. I think that he's probably like he might be one of their best defenders too, if mm-hmm. not if not their best defender. Low bar. Yeah, I mean bar is not. <laughs> Bar, 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 he's a good defender. Bar is not high. Bar is not high. Um, you know that's funny. I I remember hearing all offseason, including from Will Wade, about how how much Javante Smart had improved defensively, and then like I watched him play Alabama twice. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, but yeah, like Darius Day's swinging gate. You know, I mean they've got they've got guy. They just struggle so much on that end. They're 137th now in Kim Pump, which in like the power six, like that's it's tough to get down into those numbers. It's it's truly hard to imagine. Like uh, like that's crazy. I mean, um, I do see looking at Ken Palm. I think that Boston College is somewhere in that range. But I mean, like other than that, if I go to uh, you know you look at teams in that range, I go on Ken Palm right now. I mean, like yeah, they're one one behind uh, North Dakota State. They're also two behind Iowa. Who uh, you know, beware in your brackets. I know some people are going to fall in love with the Luca Garza show, uh, but man, they are dismal uh, defensively. So so there is, I guess you know that that's more high major teams than I expected in that range. But uh, man, that is like you're putting yourself in like the Tennessee state, like Kent state range with those kind of defensive numbers. Like I'm, I'm astounded that Will Wade can be that good of an offensive coach and just like be that poor as a defensive coach, especially when you see the, uh, the athletes they have. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, you, you know, you look at like Pat Kelsey and Winthrop who are really good, but they're ahead of LSU in that category and they're a team that in their conference, because of COVID, wasn't allowed to leave their conference and play the normal brutal schedule that, that, that Winthrop plays to challenge themselves. And I think they're 20 spots ahead in defense, defensive efficiency or, 
or it's at least it's double digits. Uh, and that's in the big South. So like, it's hard. It's hard to be to struggle to get stops like like they do. So I think Florida will have a very good chance to win the game. Um, you know, Florida tends to respond to this kind of stuff really well. Uh, you know, let's let's leave. Somebody asked uh, about Osaya Sifo, and I don't know what his status is. I guess we could have asked Graham, but um, you know, it was interesting to see Mike White talk about needing his energy a little bit. Not necessarily saying like. Florida wins the game with Osaya Sifo, which I think would have been a hot take for like anybody, but uh, he definitely brings some juice. And, and I do think with Florida packing the gaps more, he's helped. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at that and I look at like, I mean, the there were takes out there on the Gator country forums on Twitter that were like, we win this game with Osaya Sifo playing. And I mean, I cannot personally get there, um, but I can, I can see where it's coming from. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I, uh, like hearing that and, and hearing, you know, Mike White say, say that about, uh, about his energy level. Like, I, I know I should probably be taking that as like a compliment towards Osayo Sifo, but like, to me, it's more like, man, like the Gators need to get more out of, out of Anthony Deruji. And, and he's just such an, such an inconsistent player. I would say like, he's, he's the, like, I, I think I mentioned on the podcast, I think he's the most inconsistent Gator. Um, I, 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 I think you could, maybe argue a few, a few separate players. I know some would say Scotty Lewis. I would not agree with that. I, I think it would be, I, I think Lewis has actually been fairly, fairly consistent. I think it's a lot of just like the role and the positions he gets puts in, gets put in. But uh, yeah, I mean, if, if you're itching for Osayo Sifo minutes and you're missing him, I mean, I think just think that that points to Anthony Deruji not playing particularly well. And, and again, I, I don't think he made much of a difference. I think you'd also, um, again, you would have loved to see maybe uh, Scotty Lewis in, in the power forward role, go, go better, but uh, that just hasn't been the case. And then um, of course uh, they just didn't stick with uh, the Omar pay next to Colin Castleton as, as much as, uh, as much as maybe I personally would, would have liked. So, so again, I mean, you, I, I'm glad that Osiris Sifo has gotten to the point where where there's fans that are like, oh man, we really missed him tonight. Um, the fact that that White will reference his energy, but uh, man, if yeah, again, I just think if you're if you're clamoring for more Osiris Sifo, it's it's probably just an indication that some of the guys that should be out of him just aren't playing well enough. Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. Glue glue guys are good, um, but we're not in the like, will you get Justin Leon glue guy category with him? We've had one one game in I think both of our opinions where he's played meaningful minutes. Uh, so, so you need a little bit of a bigger sample size than that uh, to say he's, he would have been the difference, uh, but we'll see if, if Florida can get it back together Saturday at the PMAC, uh, you know, a place, like I've said, with many strong ass memories for Gator fans. So hopefully uh, they create some more of them on Saturday. Well, do you see too that, uh, that Alex Fudge has, uh, left high school and he's joining LSU now. Did you hear about that? Oh, I mean, you know, might as well get in there before the uh, spigot gets turned off by the NCAA. Well, that's what I was, uh, that's what I was kind of thinking, or maybe he, uh, maybe he had a cash advance that, uh, that got, <laughs> got on campus early, but, um, and I don't, I don't actually know if he's even, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know the situation, like if he's, if he's supposed to play, but I know that, yeah, the other day it's like, yeah, he's, he's leaving high school and, and joining LSU. And again, maybe like, I don't know if he's like I don't know redshirting. Like I don't know why you would redshirt in a year where the eligibility doesn't doesn't count. So so yeah, they they might be saying like, hey, we desperately need like someone who might be able to defend. I don't know what you think of Alex Wedge as a defender. I didn't see him enough 
to know, but uh, I don't know, you know, maybe they're just trying anything, but I did think it was interesting that um, things are not going particularly well. They think that the the guillotine might drop at any moment and Alex Fudge is coming to town. So uh, take that for uh, what you will. Yeah. I think the notice of allegations is coming soon too. There's something going on like, and you know, cause it is schedule is part of it and they should have won that Texas tech game. But I mean, they just got absolutely run off the floor by Alabama twice. Uh, and, and that was interesting. And, and they, you know, really weren't particularly competitive in that Kentucky game. Now, then again, you know, Florida wasn't either on a, if Kentucky makes everything, which has happened like twice this season, uh, they're, they're pretty good. Um, but they don't usually make very much of anything. Uh, we'll get to talk about them soon enough. So thanks everybody for listening. Thanks to Graham Hall for joining us. And uh, we will be back after uh, Florida's game at LSU to preview a trip to Knoxville, Tennessee. Bye everybody.